up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, an obstetrician-gynecologist explains the testing options for screening for cervical cancer. Adding the HPV test several years ago has actually made it possible for women over the age of 30 who'd had normal tests to be able to go every five years. The president of the Medical Society of the State of New York gives an overview of the most pressing medical issues in New York State. We look at different um, impediments to patients getting care, whether that's insurance-driven, other regulation-driven, uh, social determinants of health. And we'll hear from a physician assistant who cares for many of the refugees who resettle in the Syracuse area from a variety of other countries. I have some patients from Syria that may have spent four years or so in Jordan and then they come to the United States. Um, so it's different for everybody. All that and a selection from The Healing Muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear from the president of the Medical Society for the State of New York. Then we'll talk about health care for refugees with a physician assistant from Upstate's Adult Medicine Clinic. But first, we'll learn about screening for cervical cancer and why the pap smear may be falling out of favor. best way to screen women for cervical cancer. A recent study called into question the sensitivity of the pap smear, a test that's been in use for decades. So now what do we do? Here to provide some answers is Dr. Renee Mestad, an assistant professor and division chief of obstetrics and gynecology at Upstate. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Now this was a big study. It was published in a major journal, the Journal of the American Medical Association, or JAMA. Can you tell us a little about it and how it was done? Yes. So the researchers um, studied two different groups of women. Um, one group underwent the uh, the control group underwent the traditional uh, Paps the traditional cervical cancer screening. The other group underwent cervical cancer screening with only HPV testing. HPV is the virus that has been recognized as the dominant cause of most cervical cancers in the United States for women. Currently, um, most women undergo routine testing, which where we scrape a sample of cells off of the cervix and they send them off to the pathologist who looks at them under a microscope and determines if they're abnormal or not. In the past 10 or 15 years, we have added HPV testing, which is a DNA test that grows the cells to get enough so we can actually look at the DNA to see if the virus exists. So it, it still involves taking a sample from the uh, cervix. cervix? Yes. Okay. So what this test was looking at is possibly skipping the pathology test where the pathologist looks at it under a microscope and just looking at the DNA test alone. Huh. Okay. From the patient's point of view, it seems the same, though. You so, still have to go to the yes. doctor for a... Okay. Yes. You still, at this time, we would still have to put a speculum in the vagina, scrape off a sample of the cells, and send that off to a laboratory although it wouldn't necessarily go to a pathologist who would look under it, at it under a microscope. Okay. So what the, what the study did was it took women and it, it, a group of them only underwent the scraping with the pathologist test, and the other group underwent the sampling with the DNA test, and that's the H HPV test. 
Any women who came up with abnormal results from either of those tests then underwent the standard diagnostic testing to see if there are any actual abnormal cells, and then underwent necessary treatments based on what those findings were, and then were followed up over the next four years. At the end of the four years, the women who underwent the traditional testing then got HPV testing, and the women who underwent the HPV alone test got traditional testing. And in the end, they found that um, women who underwent HPV testing by the end of the four years had ultimately more abnormal cells were detected, but they were detected earlier on in the first round of testing after the first year or two. And by the time they got to the four years, there were fewer women with abnormal tests, whereas the women, in comparison to the women who underwent traditional testing. Additionally, the women who got HPV testing throughout the, the research study and then had the traditional testing, only three more um, abnormal abnormalities were found, whereas women who underwent traditional testing and then got HPV testing at the end of the four years, 25 more cases of abnormal cells were found. So it's a more sensitive test. The HPV, looking at the, the DNA, exactly. is more sensitive. Exactly. Identifies the potential for abnormalities earlier and more consistently. All right. Now, you use the term screening and also diagnostic. Is there a difference between those? Yes. Um, so a screening test is designed to be fairly inexpensive and something that we can do for all women who don't already have other thing, other health concerns that make them higher risk. So, so the ma average... mass population. Exactly. The average okay. everyday walking around person. Um, and it is designed not only to be inexpensive, but also to be easy to perform on many people, and fairly non-invasive, as in not painful, although some women would question whether or not a pelvic exam is, is not painful, mm -hmm. but it, it doesn't involve any cutting or sewing or, or anything sure. um, that prevents you from going about the rest of your day. And is designed to identify women who, who otherwise would not appear to be high risk to... Um, determine if they need, who, who it is that is at higher risk of having a cancer or a precancer, and then do the further testing to, and that which is the diagnostic testing, to determine whether or not they actually have a cancer. Because um, obviously we can't run around doing, cutting large portions off of women's cervixes every year or every other year, because um, that would make all women infertile. So the pap smear, while, like I said, some women aren't, would question whether or not a pelvic exam is painful or invasive or not, um, performing the visualization and taking a quick sample of cells off of the surface of the cervix um, is, for the most part, fairly non-invasive and does not prevent them from going about the rest of their day. And the pap smear's been in use for decades, right? It's been, it was instrumental in reducing the number of deaths from cervical cancer yes. because it found a lot, right? Yes. So, so what we have been doing, so it was, um, came into being probably about the, was, it was actually described in the twenties, but, um, became more of a, a recognized, um, method of determining whether or not women had the potential for developing cervical cancer in about the fifties or sixties. Mm. And, Traditionally, it's been done every year, and um, unfortunately, some doctors still do them every year at this point in time. Um, and what it did was it identified precancerous cells. 
that made it possible for doctors to start treating women and removing the precancerous cells or doing closer monitoring of them to help prevent them from actually ever developing cervical cancer. About 20 years ago or so, we developed liquid-based tests as opposed to smears. So we traditionally took off cells from the surface of the cervix, smeared it on a slide, sent it to the pathologist, they looked at it under a microscope. Um, the problem with that is if there were problems with, with vaginal infections or lubricants, made it more difficult to see the, see the cells properly, which is why we did the test every single year because it, um, it would help to catch any, any abnormalities we missed the prior year. Oh. With the liquid-based test that became more popular about 20 years ago or so, um, that helps to effectively remove a lot of the debris that got in the way of proper viewing. And so ultimately we were able to space out the tests up to every three years if a woman had had several normal tests before that. And the reason we found we were able to space them out is because cervical cancer is an incredibly slow-growing cancer. You're looking at 20 years from identifying some, some abnormal cells to developing full-blown cancer, as we understand cancer. So being able to space them out, the, the tests out to every three years, if women had been previously normal, was a boon to everybody. Sure. Um, adding the HPV test several years ago has actually made it possible for women over the age of 30 who'd had normal tests to be able to go every five years. If she has a negative HPV test and a negative um, pathology test that um, doesn't show any signs of, of precancer cells. So, Is there a big difference in price between HPV versus PAP? I honestly couldn't tell you the exact price because it varies from lab to lab okay. and, um, and also varies with the contract that they have with the various insurance companies. Um, but ultimately being able to do one test instead of two tests would decrease would the costs. Logically, overall. it makes yes. sense that it would. Now, since this study came out and was published and, and has kind of circulated among OBGYNs, is it changing their practice with patterns? Currently in the United States, there's only one test that's been FDA approved for single testing, one HPV test. So any other HPV tests um, still have to be done with the, the pathology, the traditional testing. Um, given that there are still OBGYNs who are doing pap smears every single year on otherwise um, normal women, and that there are still, unfortunately, some OBGYNs who are doing pap tests on women who are under the age of 21, both of which have been recommended against for over 10 years. Um, it's going to be a long time before I think a lot of OBGYNs are ready to stop doing the, the traditional pap smear um, and do the HPV only. And some of that is a, we like to see more than one study to support this. There have been several smaller studies that have incidentally made the same finding, but they were never, the other studies weren't designed to directly study um, how much better the HPV testing is right. for screening than traditional pap tests. So a lot of us like to see multiple studies that really support this information. Um, we want to hear from the um, 
I put in air quotes, governing bodies of the medical organizations like the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, um, the um, colposcopy society. Um, colposcopy is the diagnostic test for um, cancer. And um, the other groups that the American Cancer Society that make recommendations for how we, we um, do screening tests. So, and those organizations compile a lot of all the data and study it and make recommendations based on that. So I think it's going to be a while before we have HPV alone testing, but we are definitely going in that direction. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Renee Mastad, an assistant professor and division chief of obstetrics and gynecology at Upstate. So we've been talking about the HPV test but I think listeners have heard us before, because we've done segments on it, the HPV vaccine. What, what's the difference? What are these two things? So the virus that causes cancer, HPV, human papillomavirus, um, is incredibly common. And there's over 70 different varieties that um, affect both men and women. Um, most of us have been exposed and just getting basic hand-foot warts. Um, That is actually caused by HPV, but a different type of HPV than that that causes um, cervical cancer. Um, But it's been linked to anal cancer. It's been linked to oral cancer. It has been linked to genital warts, both on men and women. It's been linked to penile cancer. We've We've heard it mostly in relation to cervical cancer for women. The vaccine, when given to um, people who are younger and before they've ever been exposed to the virus, to HPV. So adolescents or children. Exactly. Um, Has been demonstrated to dramatically decrease the risk of HPV infection and the subsequent um, precancers, cancers, warts, et cetera, uh, for both men and women. So it's protective. Exactly. Um, so it, it prevents the people who are exposed to the virus from actually ever getting the virus and getting the abnormal cells that result in cancer, which is why it's very, very important that both men and women or boys and girls ultimately receive the vaccine because it is generally sexually transmitted. And so boys give it to girls and girls give it to boys. And if everybody's vaccinated, then it's not really going to be able to take root. Is everyone getting vaccinated? No. Unfortunately, because it is a sexually transmitted virus, there are um, a lot of parents who are concerned that it will make their children more promiscuous um, and make them feel like it's safe for them to go out and have sex flagrantly. Um, There have actually been some studies that demonstrated that it does not increase the promiscuity of adolescents. But just trying to get that word out is a challenge, yes. I imagine. Yes, it now, is. Now, uh, cervical cancer is still a concern, right? Yes, it still is. Um, we've It used to be the number one cancer killer of women, but with the advent of pap smears several decades ago, it has decreased um, dramatically. Unfortunately, a lot of women stop seeing their doctor after they have their last child. The story that I see most often in my office is a woman has her, her ch- last child, she gets her tubes tied, and then she disappears from us for about 15 or 20 years. She returns because she has abnormal bleeding, we do an exam, and she has cancer, very visible, obvious cancer growing on her cervix. And that is what we, unfortunately, we still see in the United States today. And the screening, again, is important because there's not a lot of signs and symptoms until early signs and exactly, symptoms until. until there's actual cancer. 
Well, this has been very informative. I appreciate your time coming in to talk about this. My guest has been Dr. Renee Mastad. She's an assistant professor and division chief of obstetrics and gynecology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, the president of the Medical Society for the State of New York, who happens to be a graduate of Upstate Medical University. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The Medical Society for the State of New York is an organization that represents roughly 20,000 physicians, and its current president went to medical school at Upstate Medical University in Syracuse. Dr. Thomas Medeski is an internal medicine doctor in Medina, near Buffalo, who focuses mostly on geriatric and palliative care, and he's with me by telephone today. So thank you, Dr. Medeski. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. I appreciate it. Well, I, I read a quote from you saying that, uh, calling this the golden age of medicine, and so I wanted to ask you why you believe that. Well, uh, I think we have so many uh, new treatment options and the potential for uh, uh, greatly improved care for patients uh, as we integrate some uh, new developments in uh, uh, biology, uh, technology, that uh, medication or medicine is going through uh, one of those transformative periods where the practice is going to change substantially uh, to the betterment of uh, of our uh, our health as a population. So we've had some uh, guests on HealthLink recently talking about uh, you know personalized medicine and immunotherapy and uh, genetic testing, DNA sequencing, all of those things. Um, is that what you're sort of talking about being sort of transformative? Uh, that, that's a large part of it. I think, you know, uh, the practice of medicine is matching uh, a, uh, uh, first of all, making a, an accurate diagnosis and then matching uh, a treatment to an individual patient. And we are uh, at the point now where we are beginning to develop very, as people have turned it, personalized treatments. I mean, treatment has always mm-hmm. been personalized to an individual patient, uh, but as we'll be able to see what people's metabolism is for uh, different medications based on their genetic makeup and can implement that much more easily than it could have potentially done in the past, uh, I think we'll be able to make better choices for uh, treatment for our patients and hopefully have better results of those treatment plans. So it does sound revolutionary, what you describe. Uh, Both revolutionary and evolutionary. I think we've been working towards this for, for many years. Uh, but as the cost of some of the things that we will need to do that, such as DNA sequencing, uh, comes down, um, we can then, uh, you know, make the test affordable, cost efficient. Uh, hopefully, if we do that well enough, we'll actually uh, try and start to uh, make care more cost effective as well, because we spend a lot of money on health care in the United States, and I, I think it's difficult to... Uh, to argue that some of that could be redeployed in better better ways. Okay. Well, now, uh, doctors who have been practicing for a few decades, 
are they prepared and ready to uh, deal with a patient who comes in and, and hands them a printout of their genome? Um, I think that is an area that we have to do a better job with. So we need to um, enhance what we're doing in terms of medical education um, at the undergraduate, uh, graduate, and postgraduate level. Uh, that information is becoming more widely available, uh, but it's uh, going to have to be um, uh, dispersed more greatly throughout the medical community. You know, we have a very small number of uh, specialists in genetic medicine who, um, you know, use tools to uh, interpret that data, but that's going to need to be done uh, much more widely uh, across the profession. Uh, hopefully, uh, with developments in artificial intelligence, uh, that'll also improve some of our ability to do that on a more widespread basis. Okay. Well, you've advocated for HIV testing and treatment of newborns, um, for mental health parity, and for privacy protections as we move to electronic medical records. While you were in medical school, did you envision that you would become like politically active like that? Um, I, I don't think so. Uh, I had some exposure, uh, actually, through... Uh, through my parents, who are actually both pharmacists, and I was a uh, pharmacist uh, undergraduate before I went to medical school. And, and my mother actually was very involved in the pharmaceutical society of the state of New York. So I did have a role model there. Uh, but in medical school, I was more concerned about, you know, learning the material, uh, figuring out how to be a good doctor and take care of patients. Okay. Uh, as I got more comfortable with that and then uh, went into practice, um, looked at a bunch of different practice options, uh, thought about staying at Upstate uh, initially and uh, had had a couple kids and uh, uh, wanted to take a break from education for a while, so I started practicing in a uh, small rural community in Sotus, New York. Mm -hmm. And uh, going into practice, you realize that not only do you have to have the medical knowledge, but you have to have the ability to implement things for your patients. And uh, as a practicing physician, one of the... Uh, difficulties of practice are, are barriers to care for you to get the right care for your patient. That happens in many different ways. Uh, sometimes there are insurance company rules which, while hopefully well-intentioned on an individual basis, sometimes are nonsensical. And some of the time that I should be spending with my patients taking care of them, uh, you know, was taken away by having to deal with those things. So looking for a solution for those kind of problems as I started my practice uh, I became active in initially the uh, um, Wayne County Medical Society, and then when I came over to where I am now, uh, Orleans County. Um, when I uh, began to be active there to try and solve some of the problems that you had mentioned, for example, uh, uh, prohibitions on HIV testing, inadequate protections for patient privacy, uh, I became more active in the state medical society and then had some mentors who uh, sort of brought me along and uh, sort of encouraged me to take a leadership role, and that's how I'm here today. Okay, great. Well, can we talk about the role that um, the Medical Society for the State of New York plays in creating health policy in New York? Sure. Uh, that is uh, probably our, our, our uh, uh, primary focus is uh, on improving the care of patients and um, the practice of medicine within the state. And that has many different aspects. As we talked about, we, we look at different um, impediments to patients getting care, whether that's insurance-driven, other regulation-driven, uh, social determinants of health, which are, are becoming more and more identified as issues in patients' uh, 
uh, getting care and complying with care. Uh, we also look at uh, various public health policies. So two of the issues that um, uh, are important uh, issues for us this year are end-of-life care uh, and questions about, you know, what the role of physicians are uh, in caring for people at the end of life and should they uh, participate in physician-assisted suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other major issue that is uh, on the uh, uh, on, on, uh, very topical right now is uh, marijuana, uh, both uh, medicinal use and the state's plan now to move forward with legalization. Uh, the medical society has, again, with our 20,000 members, we have content experts in pretty much everything. Uh, and if we don't have individual content experts within the society, we have relationships where we can um, get that uh, information that we need. Um, we come together as physicians and figure out what the science is and then try and decide what the best thing is for our patients. Uh, sometimes that's not one thing. Uh, so sometimes there's a lot of nuance to our positions and how we approach things. Uh, this past week, um, we've been uh, dealing with the issue of uh, medical marijuana, and the state has now uh, uh, proposed some emergency resolution, uh, uh, emergency uh, activity through the Department of Health to um, uh, allow it for use for acute pain and for treatment of opioid use disorder. And uh, we have concerns that there's really not uh, um, a lot of well-substantiated data to support those uses. So we've had some meetings with the health department to express our concerns. Uh, we will make, um, you know, more uh, comments in the public comment period uh, as the regulations are being reviewed uh, because we have some concern that we may be going with marijuana down the path we went with opioids uh, 20 to 30 years ago. So there was uh, a small amount of data and expert opinion uh, that opioids could be used more widely and uh, that was implemented uh, based on small amount of data, expert opinion, and then driven by an industry uh, so that uh, the use of opioids was greatly increased. And while it was true for some patients that those things were possible, it looks like uh, we overestimated uh, both the efficacy and uh, underestimated severely the uh, adverse uh, consequences for individuals and for society. And, uh, again, uh, we have concerns that there is a similar scenario uh, uh, potentially occurring with the uh, increased uh, acceptance and use of marijuana. And, and again, this is, uh, this is an area where there is uh, disagreement uh, and differences of opinion, uh, but we try to get together for the hard data and see, uh, see what we can do to uh, uh, give patients uh, accurate information so that they're not harmed by overuse or misuse. Well, I have some more questions on that, but let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Thomas Majeski, the president of the Medical Society of the State of New York and a graduate of Upstate. Um, so we're talking about medical mar- marijuana, right? That, which we're is already talking approved. about medical marijuana specifically. Okay. Not, not recreational. Think, right. I think recreation and, and uh, legalization is a related but different area. But so, that's also like something the state's... comments just now were regard to expanding the use of medical marijuana uh, as a treatment option for opioid use disorder and for acute pain. Okay, gotcha. Um, we have particular concerns about the opioid use disorder because uh, if, if you have uh, multiple different treatment options, 
uh, you want people to use the most effective options. And we have very good data, uh, which has evolved as part of our dealing with the opioid crisis, that medication-assisted treatment with either uh, buprenorphine or methadone is very effective in treatment of um, uh, opioid use disorder and also reduces uh, deaths from, uh, from uh, misuse. Uh, so uh, that data just is not there as far as we can see uh, with, uh, with uh, medical marijuana. And again, the concern is that uh, if you have an ineffective treatment and you are promoting it as possibly being effective, people will uh, miss opportunities or avoid other treatments which are more effective. Okay. Well, I understand you've convened a task force to look at improving the care of patients at the end of their lives. So can you talk about what the current situation is and what you'd like to see done to improve it? Yeah. Um, So... um, Uh, I I think one of the things uh, I learned as I came through uh, the organization and uh, uh, became one of the leaders of the organization is is, uh, uh, that I had uh, some ability to bring people together to uh, try and, um, again, hash out difficult topics. And I think one of the uh, difficult topics that society is also dealing with and New York is dealing with is... uh, uh, physician-assisted suicide, or um, also termed aid in dying. Uh, there, uh, again, there are probably, uh, there, there are difficult to reconcile positions on both sides of the issue. Uh, and I don't know that they are actually reconcilable. So uh, what I had hoped to do after trying to engage with uh, both sides of the discussion was to put together a task force that would look at what we can do to improve end-of-life care for everybody in this state and what we can do to um, uh, improve particularly the care of patients as they're dying. We have um, a number of tools uh, to uh, get patients uh, the right care uh, when they're dealing with a terminal illness or towards the end of their natural life. And uh, my personal experience as a hospice director, uh, as a family member of a dying patient, is that they're, they're not utilized as well as they, they should be. So um, based on those discussions uh, uh, and concerns from the um, uh, advocates for physician-assisted suicide, uh, I put together this task force to see where we could come together, hopefully, and move the care of everybody forward and also try to address uh, the issue of uh, assistance with dying. Um, so, uh, so the task force has just had their initial meeting. Uh, it is uh, actually going to involve all the, the different subcommittees that we have at MISNI, and we have some on bioethics, obviously, will be involved. We have a long-term care committee. Uh, we have a uh, committee on uh, psychiatry and addiction medicine. Um, we have a socioeconomic committee that looks at uh, coverage issues, implementation of care, things like that. So. Uh, the uh, directors are uh, two well-respected uh, physicians in New York State, Dr. Jeffrey Berger, uh, who is at uh, New York University, and Dr. John Mays, who is a uh, former uh, um, governor of the American College of Physicians in New York State. So uh, they just had their first meeting. They've uh, sort of assigned their, their work to the various areas that we're interested in. And over the next six to nine months, we hope to have uh, uh, those uh, work groups come back with recommendations for what we can do to improve things for everybody. 
Well, that's good to know. Well, before I let you go, um, I was going to ask, uh, tell me what you miss most about your time in Syracuse. Uh, um, we, we lived in Syracuse for about 10 years, so uh, uh, had a great time there. I met my wife there my uh, first day of medical school. Oh. Uh, and we got married at the at when I finished medical school and have had, uh, that's been probably the joy of, of my life, my wife and my children. Um, the other uh, folks that I miss are, are people from my medical school class who I stay in touch with a few of, and, uh, more, and also my residency particularly. And I was actually uh, able to see one of my good friends, uh, Dr. Nisha Min, who's moved back to uh, uh, Syracuse. He's uh, the chief of the uh, cath lab at St. Joe's. Uh, to reconnect with him after about 10 years. Uh, so I, I think the friendships and the, the camaraderie are what I miss the most. And um, uh, one of my columns uh, over the last week or two was to uh, encourage our members to, you know, reconnect with their friends and the people that matter most to them. Uh, and that would be my uh, other encouragement for the other listeners, that, you know, if you haven't seen somebody that you love uh, and uh, talked to them in a while, you should do that makes them feel better, makes you feel better. Well, thank happy you. physicians make for happy patients. <laughs> thank you so much for your time. My guest has been Dr. Thomas Medeski, an Upstate Medical University graduate and now the president of the Medical Society for the State of New York. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next... The challenges and rewards of providing health care to refugees on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Syracuse has been known for the last decade as a city where people can resettle if they're fleeing their home countries because of persecution over religion or race or membership in a social group. The number of refugees coming to Onondaga County has dropped significantly, um, 72% in 2017, after President Trump took office. Still, some 10,000 refugees have made this area their home in the past 10 years, and one of the things they need is medical care. So here to talk about her role in caring for the refugee population is Ayan Mohammed. She's a physician assistant in Upstate's adult medicine clinic where many refugees receive their care. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Let's begin by uh, talking about the difference between um, a refugee and an immigrant. I've, some people maybe see those terms as interchangeable, but they mean different things, right? right. Yep, absolutely. Um, so a refugee, um, really, when we're talking about the word refugee, is somebody who um, has been forced to flee uh, or leave their country for fear of persecution, violence, or war. Um, so they are leaving really out of necessity for safety, um, rather than just simply better employment or to meet a family member. Um, their stories are distinctly different, whereas an immigrant may be coming to um, just you know meet a family member, um, reunite with a family member, I should say, um, or to um, find better employment. The history of trauma is not as prominent as it is for a refugee. Okay. So do you have a feel for which countries of origin are the most prevalent in this area? 
So when refugees are resettled, they usually are in waves of kind of what countries are most at need, depending on whatever, uh, what the climate is currently with uh, wars in different different countries that we may have going on. So currently, we're all familiar with the crisis happening in Syria. um, So we may see that um, more prevalent now. But um, I would say in our practice, I mean, we see, uh, you know, ton from Democratic Democratic Republic of Congo, Somalia. Um, uh, we see a lot of, you know, uh, Bhutanese and, and Nepal. Um, so it comes in waves, um, and it really depends on, you know, what countries are most hit with uh, the, the war. All right. I noticed um, that you're a graduate of the Lemoyne College PA program, um, and that you also speak Somali yourself. Yes. Um, can you talk about your background and what drew you into the medical field and then why you have, it seems like a passion for refugee health. Yeah. How did that all come about? Um, so I, uh, actually my dad is in the medical field. Um, so growing up um, way back in Somalia, he's actually a dermatologist and has had, has his own clinic there. And so growing up, I was sort of familiar with the with the medical field. Um, and then I think just watching, you know, someone like my mother who had always just helped people um, in everything that she did, um, you know, being a community member um, and really helping refugees. When, when we came here, I just was always intrigued. Uh, and I know it sounds cliche to help people, but that was really what drew me. Um, and medicine, I think, is just an interesting field because you really um, get to meet people, I think, in their most vulnerable state and can really help them and they really rely on you, especially the refugee population. I think, you know, they've had so much trauma that has been inflicted on them and that they felt um, that it's really, I think, I can, I feel I can make a difference because one, I've experienced, you know, uh, their story and, and understand what they may have gone through and to be able to speak the, the language that they speak um, for those that are Somali, it's just a... Uh, That's got to be a huge help and, yeah. and really a reassurance for absolutely, the patient. Absolutely, yeah. So it definitely helps. So when I see Somali patients not being able to use an interpreter or not needing to use an interpreter because I can speak the language, it just makes it much more comfortable for them and, and easier. So absolutely. Can you explain the process of resettlement for refugees? I mean, um, is there there's advance notice? Do they know ahead of time uh, where they're going to be coming? How does that work? Yeah. So um, when so for refugees, it's a really long process, and so it involves different agencies. And so um, it initially starts out with the United uh, Nations for um, Higher Commission of Refugees that really. Um, chooses refugees, I guess, if you may say. Um, and so they will actually refer refugees that need resettlement, depending on the, the climate. Um, and then the process begins, um, and there's a screening process. They go through multiple interviews. There's different agencies that are involved. They do background checks. Um, so this process really is all done abroad and can take you know about two years or, or more to really complete. Um, and the final end of it for us that we really focus on is the medical screening that they do prior to arrival. So this is usually done within six months of them arriving here. And this is, you know, screening for tuberculosis is done. We find out about any, um, you know, parasite treatments they may have received, vaccinations that they need prior to coming here, um, and then get a sense of kind of, you know, if there's any nutritional deficiencies, um, any diseases, chronic diseases that they may have that need to be managed, medications they're on. Um, And we have access to this through the CDC where we can look this information up. So when they come, we're really prepared for them. When you mentioned that this is a lengthy process and that it may be in the works for up to a couple of years, yes. are the refugees in a protected 
status somehow um, or not necessarily? Not necessarily. So they may be in refugee camps while they're waiting for this to, to all occur. Um, I mean, my family and I were, that process took for us about two to three years um, from leaving Somalia to being able to come to the United States. Um, so they may be in refugee camps. They may be in a host country that they're at. Um, so, for example, I have some patients from Syria that may have spent four years or so in Jordan, and then they come to the United States. Um, so it's different for everybody. Well, let's talk about um, what happens once they're here in Syracuse. Absolutely. What is that welcome like, and what are sort of the challenges that really face these new 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 people yes so there are two agencies that we have here that are really vital for um, refugee resettlement so every refugee that comes is linked with um, uh, you know case management and so that could be through um, Catholic charities or through interfaith works and so they have these case managers that really are vital especially during the first few months in helping them to um, go to their medical appointments to set up transport transportation, housing, all of those things for them. Um, And then once, for us, really, the goal is that we try to get them into uh, seeing a medical provider, have their initial medical screening within 90 days of arrival. Often we can get that done much quicker, really, because we have such a close relationship with the um, resettlement agencies here in Syracuse. Um, And so we try to do that initial screening through them. And so New York State actually has um, paperwork that we complete. And so it's a full physical examination, blood work that we do, vaccinations that we provide. And then we get them established and have an established care visit where they will meet, you know, our our primary care and further discuss kind of the... um, the things that we have noted on the initial screening. Is there insurance coverage, health insurance coverage? There is. When they initially come, they um, all will receive insurance, um, but then this will get uh, transitioned, um, usually after the first month of arrival, to a managed Medicaid that they will get. Um, And so that is really critical because that is necessary for them to be able to see a lot of the specialty visits that we may um, refer them to, so orthopedics or um, any of our other uh, specialties that we need. Do you encounter um, people who are frightened of medical providers? This is a new country and a new experience. Right, yeah. So the experiences, I would say, vary uh, depending on, you know, who you may uh, meet. And so for some, it can be, you know, they may have never even had a consistent primary care provider or just knowing the idea of primary care um, or that we screen for things or that we have health maintenance. um, And so it's just uh, really just, uh, you know, getting them used to the American healthcare system. And there are often... Yeah, times where maybe they've had bad experiences or, um, you know, not really ones that have been enjoyable. And so coming here, they may have certain fears or not understand certain things. And um, just explaining to them really that as patients, they have rights here. There are things that we can do to assist them. And so I think those fears kind of it take may take some time. But I think during the first couple of visits, you can really kind of break down some of those, um, you know, barriers that they may have or um, uh, worries that they are having. And you already mentioned language. Yes. Um, how do you communicate with someone who doesn't speak either of your, you, you speak English and Somali? Yes, so, yeah, absolutely. Um, how do so you- um, Upstate has been really amazing, I think, and uh, providing us really uh, translation services. Um, and so we have interpreter services that are available. So in our clinic, we have iPads, so we can use video interpreters. We can have phone calls where we actually, um, the interpreter 
It can be audio. We can even get somebody live in person um, who's there. Um, so there's many different avenues that can be utilized. Um, and so translation is really um, interpretation, I should say, is really not an issue. Um, and then for the ones that are fortunate enough to be able to speak Somali, it just is much easier. But yeah, we can use interpreter services and they're very available to us. Well, what are some of the medical issues that are typical among refugees? Are there things that are common from different, even from different countries or... So uh, there may be certain, you know, risk factors just depending on, um, you know, where they're coming from and things that they may be more, um, more at risk for or certain things that they may have been exposed to given, uh, you know, certain things that may be endemic in their area that they're coming from. So obviously we have to be aware of those things when they first come in, when we're thinking about, you know, risk factors that they have for certain diseases and things. Um, but I would say once they really get here, um, that we see the same conditions with refugees and non-refugee patients in internal medicine, adult medicine. Really, it's it's treating chronic diseases, and so we see diabetes, we see high blood pressure. Um, all of those things are are common, I would say, in in the refugee population. There are just certain risk factors that may vary that you have to mm. be aware of, especially in the first few months of them uh, getting here. And some of these conditions maybe haven't been treated. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So we get a little bit of a hint from that um, initial uh, screening that I was talking about that is done abroad. Um, but there may be things that have be, have been missed or maybe not treated as it should be or um, addressed. Um, certainly, I would say, um, you know, health screening, um, like for maybe cervical cancer, all of those things. Um, I haven't seen those really done as prevalently. And so coming here, it's kind of very new to our refugee patients explaining what those, you know, screening uh, tools are that we use the screening tools and then I think you mentioned vaccinations there's yeah probably if you come from another country you haven't had the vaccines that are recommended in America so they have um, it may just not be in the time so there's they may have to catch up on certain vaccinations that they've missed um, but there are some that they will get um, especially if they're in certain like you know refugee camps and there may have been a recent outbreak or something of, of measles they will get that vaccination prior to arriving here things like that um, but they do get some vaccinations yes um, but they may just they may have started some and have not completed it so we have to just complete it for them when, once they arrive here um, what about psychological trauma? Is that an issue with people who are coming here, not necessarily because they want to leave their home country, but as a refugee? Does that come up a lot? Yes, yes, that definitely comes up a lot. And it's uh, very common, obviously, from individuals who have faced trauma like like refugees have. And so in our first visit with them, really, we screen for, um, you know, symptoms of depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder by, you know, asking them certain questions, doing questionnaires. Um, and we try to tell them, you know, this is, this is very common. It's nothing to fear. It can be something that can be, you know, treated and, and managed. Um, um, so, yeah, we have to definitely be aware of that and, and, and watch out for that because that definitely is, is prevalent, I would say. Once um, uh, people settle in into the community, do they stay a patient of yours or do they end up, you know, transitioning to maybe a family practice provider or someone else? 
So once they establish, uh, they can continue to see us um, for their primary care. Oftentimes what will happen, though, is that the individuals that are young and healthy and can find work um, will no longer really need to see us as often as they do. And so we may not see them as frequently as we may see other patients that um, require um, chronic you know, disease management. Um, and some will often move to different country, uh, different uh, states, sorry, to find maybe better employment or be reunited with other family members that may be um, in other, um, other states. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing this with us. It's kind of an interesting line of work that you have found yourself into. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my guest has been Ayan Mohammed. She's a physician assistant from Upstate's Adult Medicine Clinic. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show. HealthLink on air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Childhood is supposed to be all loving innocence and light. Kaylin Tree, a poet and translator in Staten Island, is the author of the chapbook Quiet in the Body. She sent us a poem that shows us a less happy vision of childhood, when a teacher lacks empathy and a student lacks a voice. Here is, that girl is a bag of water. The crying girl is justice, seven, Longest eyelashes always blinking water back inside. No time for that, says Miss Pat, and too soft. I don't know who she means. I think me, soft like a jellyfish with no sting left. My job as teacher's aide is to hold a column of words, snap fingers to the tune of girls reading by rote. Cap, cape, mop, mope, can, cane, Sam, sane. Silent letter E makes the vowel say its name. The bathroom signal is a raised hand with fingers crossed high in the air. Ms. Pat says, you should have gone at snack time. Girls squirm in place. I circle the room. I can't offer permission. Great job, I say instead. I'm so happy to see you all working hard. I'm not good, says Justice. I'm just quiet. I want to say, Justice, I am also a bag of water. The doctor said, you need a specialist when I thought I was regressing at 22 years old, wetting the bed, waking every time to feel a shot of pain through my pelvis. Sent for ultrasound, my bladder collapsed on the paper-covered table the way a sea sponge releases what it holds. Diagnosis, chronic interstitial cystitis with overactive bladder triggered by stress and or trauma. Justice scoots around the floor on her knees, hyperventilating. Ms. Pat gives in. You can go to the restroom, but you'll have a demerit. Justice drags herself out the door. Wet salt streaks her cheeks, dots her shirt. There are things I want to say. I am also a bag of water, a smear of girl, Justice. I wonder if we cry for the same reason. We don't know what else to do.
This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, we'll discuss what you need to know about cardiac surgery. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.